I'll just tell you that those are important deci important decisions are being made and they're going to be made with with us or without us. And so we if we believe that we can actually affect change, it's showing up. It's showing up our people don't even want you to be there because that's what we learned from those folks in Jackson Ward. It's showing up. It's going to court. It's doing the things that even if you're uncomfortable, even if you are is making sure that 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 your voice is present in a real way. And so that's I mean, I think one of the lessons we can learn from today is is and from the past is people that made change showed up. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, it is Tuesday, December 3rd. You are listening to The Cheats Movement on WRIR. I am your host, Cheats. Joining me as always, the one, the only, the legendary, Gigi Broadway. Gigi, how you feeling? Feeling good, man. I got my frequency right. The voice you just heard was the director of the Valentine Museum, Bill Martin. Earlier today, I had an amazing conversation with Bill, and we talk all about the Valentine. We talk about Richmond's history, a lot of Richmond's forgotten history, and how we can apply what we've learned, our lessons that we've learned from the past to contemporary Richmond and contemporary Virginia today. It is a fascinating conversation with Bill Martin. Also on this episode, I am going to share with you, the audience, and Gigi Broadway, the very unlikely way that me and my wife got to take in Hamilton the Musical. If you did not know, Hamilton the Musical is playing in Richmond right now at the Altria Theater. It was an amazing night at the theater. Uh, unpredictable, <laughs> Gigi, unpredictable at best, but we really did take it in. Spoiler alert, it is phenomenal. Mm. It is an amazing, an amazing night. Uh, so if you can go see Hamilton, do so. And also, we have a really big conversation that we took on, uh, we're taking on for this episode. It is the Grammy Awards. Gigi Broadway, I know you've been following. Last week, the Grammy nominations came out. What we've done, we've done something different. We opened up the Cheats Movement hotline. We asked our listeners to tell us if they place value in the Grammy Awards have they always placed value in the Grammy Awards? Is it something that we should value as black Americans, as hip-hop enthusiasts, as fans of black culture? The, we, we really dig in. Are you ready to dig in on the Grammy Awards, Gigi Broadway? Yes, I love when the hotline is open. The hotline is open. We are so excited for this episode. It is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. We will be right back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. We mentioned it a little while ago. We did open up the Cheats Movement message board to hear your thoughts on the Grammy Awards and how much value we are placing on the Grammy Awards, Grammy nominations, and those types of accolades. Here's an opportunity for you to hear your responses in regards to how much we value the Grammy Awards. Um, no. I do not hold the Grammys in high regard, especially when it comes to hip-hop music, soul music, things of that variety, because 
our type of music was not created for that um, setup. The academy and those things predate a lot of changes and things of that nature. So it really doesn't mean much, especially when you're being judged for a music that was not created for that. You know, Peace Chiefs, the Bob Henry, I'm out. Peace Chiefs, it's good family still, man. Um, do I hold the Grammy Awards in high regard? To keep it simple, heck no. And the reason why, man, you know what I mean? In the words of uh, the almighty legendary Fife Dog, I never let a statue tell me how nice I am. You understand? I think that our culture holds on to the wrong stuff a lot. You understand? So, no, I don't hold it to high regard at all. What's up, Chiefs? This is Alex Black. I just wanted to give my two cents about the Grammy conversation. So I personally do not hold the Grammys in high regard, but I understand why uh, certain artists do hold it in high regard. Because it means that, you know, they're being accepted by a mainstream audience. And at one point in time, the Grammys were the only platform out there where they could receive awards. Um, but, you know, over the years, of course, that has changed and now we have our own platforms and I feel like we need to start taking advantage of them before we lose them. Hey, what's going on? She's moving the podcast family. It's Ella Styles here. So the question at hand is do the Grammys hold high regard? I'm going to answer that with a yes and a no. You know, coming up in the community, we more so cherish the Bob Mike system versus the Grammys, you know, but I mean, the Grammys is a stamp of um, validity, a stamp of um, approval from your peers, you know. It also adds a little extra change on the bag whenever you do some additional bookings and everything, but... Yo, Chief's name, Brad. Um, the Grammys will always be in some type of high regard uh, for me. Uh, one of the ultimate achievements that I think, you know, I would love to achieve is probably not as high as, the, as it used to be. Um, you know, but um, it's definitely something that um, will always garner a high level of respect. You got to respect those people who got their Grammys. Like, you got to respect it. What's up, Chiefs? This is Bobby Fresh. I was calling regarding your question as far as do I hold um, the Grammys in high regard. I personally do not covet the Grammys due to the, their voting system because um, <clears throat> you have any former winner. Uh, in any category is available to vote and I honestly feel as though if it's not your area of expertise you shouldn't be voting in that in that field um, it ends up becoming a popularity contest like i.e. when Macklemore won over Kendrick for Good Kid Matt City because um, it's honestly the thing of being uh, you know like you don't go to a dentist for a heart issue and um, but I also I'm aware of um the significance of Grammy Award winning um, that comes before your name. It's almost like the Super Bowl thing, like you will always have that and it covers and it actually brings you more opportunities and money to it, um, to yourself for that. But I mean, even the kicker gets a Super Bowl ring. Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, you have heard from our audience. Gigi is here. Gigi, how you feeling? Feeling good, man. Top of the month, 2019 almost over, and I'm excited. So you heard the question in regards to the Grammy Awards. 
The Grammy Awards just recently last week announced their 2019, I guess 2020 uh, nominees. There's been a lot of feedback, especially in the hip hop community. There always is. Mm -hmm. But the question that we were asking our audience is, do you hold the Grammys in high regard? And now it's time for us to take on that challenge. So I'll start with you, Gigi. You heard the majority of our callers, a majority of our listeners said that they have some form of issue with the Grammy nomination process, the Grammy award winning process. And in so, in historical context too, the Grammys not really appreciating and understanding black music. And so that leaned the majority of our listeners to a disregard or even a leveling down of the Grammy Awards. What is your take on the Grammy Awards and should they be held in high regard? Do you hold them in high regard? Well, me personally, I definitely do not hold the Grammys um, in high regard, but I can't knock anybody who does, you know, especially as a creative or someone in the music industry. But honestly, I think the Grammys have become just a debacle. And I think that the Grammys is more so for the record labels and who has the biggest machine behind them and who has the, you know, the biggest marketing dollars. I I really think the Grammys is more so for the labels than the actual individual artists. And I thought that for the last couple of years. So that was a good question because I wanted to know when did you start getting disillusioned or have you always been disillusioned with the Grammy Awards? I remember growing up as a, you know, much, much younger child, always thinking the Grammy Awards were not for me. The Mm. Grammy Awards always, the winner of the album of the year, the winner of the record of the year, uh, probably even before they had a hip hop category, Mm -hmm. um, was just not for, it wasn't something that I knew black people were going to lose. Yeah. If that made sense. But then something happened along the way where Michael Jackson started winning mm-hmm. and Prince started winning. They probably didn't honestly win as much as they should have won. Right. But they, they did start winning awards, especially in categories that a Michael Jackson or a Prince dominated. And then, the you know, in the 90s, hip hop came in and they had their hip hop category. And that was a debacle from the very beginning in regards to, you know, Will Smith and DJ Jazzy Jeff boycotting the Grammy Awards because the award wasn't on television the first time they ever had mm-hmm. a hip hop award. Yep. And then it just continued to go in, I felt like it continued to go in the wrong direction until Kanye started winning and Jay-Z started winning mm-hmm. and the people that we kind of knew and recognized started getting nominated and winning and then what I think happened and I could be wrong because this is all kind of subject to different people's opinions on it. But it was those individuals, the Jays of the world or the Kanye's of the world, all of them that were winning started putting value on it because then they started saying, well, I got what we're where our community of the black community, especially especially really didn't care about the Grammys. Yeah. Kanye was like, man, we got nominated for a Grammy. That's you know, that's crazy. And Jay-Z was like, I got nine, ten. You know what I mean? And you started seeing people put value on it in our community which had never put value on it before. Right. And so they still, to this day, I think, often get it wrong. Bobby Fresh, one of our listeners, was just uh, you know amazing historian in that sense, was talking about Macklemore winning over Kendrick Lamar. You ask anyone in, in our community, 
Uh, and when I say our community, I mean a hip hop community, right. not necessarily even white or black, but a hip hop community. And they would have told you by far Kendrick's album was superior to Macklemore's. They continue, they constantly got it wrong and continued to do so even up until this year. Yeah. But I guess that leads to a bigger question outside of machines, outside of labels. It is really what we put value in. I remember a time when the American Music Awards were bigger to me than the Grammys because I felt like the American Music Awards at the time recognized Michael Jackson, recognized Prince, mm. reckon in a way that, you know, you see the famous pictures of Michael Jackson with all his American Music Awards that look like the triangle, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like the pyramid. But now it seems like nothing has as much value as the Grammys. Nobody cares about the American Music Awards or the Billboard Awards. They might lie to you and tell you they care about the Soul Train Awards or the NAACP Image Awards, <laughs> but you don't see people flossing in the way that they floss about a Grammy nod. You know what I'm saying? And you don't see people as upset. You don't see people... I will never forget how disappointed Tribe Called Quest was when they didn't get nominated for a Grammy, I want to say, last year. This yeah. year, you know, there's big artists that are publicly saying that they didn't get nominated was like how how hurt they were about not getting nominated. And I don't see that play out with any other award show outside of the Academy Awards, which is a whole nother category, no, whole nother conversation, but very much of the same elk. Why do you feel our audience in particular put value on things like the Grammy Awards when historically the Grammy Awards have never been checking for, for black Americans and black music that way? Honestly, I think it's been ingrained in us for so long that it's kind of something hard to detach from or like lessen the value because, I mean, we all, and I mean, all grew up as like the Grammys being the pinnacle or the height of success in regards to the music industry, right? I mean, See, I feel like to, that's a good point, but I feel like that's changed. I feel like you're saying, I feel like growing up, I valued an American Music Award over a Grammy Award. But it's somehow the Grammys, maybe it was because there was this level of the Grammys that felt unattainable. So mm. it was until we started attaining it. And yeah. we had, like I said, that we really start flexing. But you know what I'm saying? Like I really, because yeah. I will give them this. Throughout the 60 plus years of the Grammy Awards, it seems to have ha it held itself in a level of superiority. Right? Oh, yeah. The Grammys has always been the constant level of superiority over all the other music awards. Yeah, I think it's the benchmark. But see, we're different because I always, even growing up, I thought the Grammys was the end all and be all. You know, I thought that was the, the highest achievement that you can get. I've always valued the Grammys over the AMAs, you know, all the other ones. Okay. So I just think that it's just we're so far like into that type of thinking that the Grammys is just like the end all or be all or or the benchmark of success that it's kind of hard to shake because it's only been what in the last few years that we have been more of a presence, you know, sure. so I just think it's and it's it's crazy because I think that we also have come to the realization that I don't want to say that, you know, we we're more included in the Grammys is them throwing us a bone or cause I, I at this point, I just don't think we can be denied. Yeah. I think, I think it's recognizing the John and, and let's be clear. The Grammys has Aretha Franklin won Grammys 
back in the late 60s throughout her entire career. So it was just kind of really understanding hip-hop culture and contemporary kind of music where I felt like they were, you know, they always missed the mark. Or categories like record of the year or best new artist. Those categories where it was the hot, like, hip-hop artists versus all the other genres. I felt like constantly they were devaluing hip-hop music in those categories. Yeah, hip-hop as a culture would say, yeah, we don't care about the Grammys, we don't care about the Grammys, we don't care about the Grammys, until you know we win we start winning and so and we feel like some of the right um artists that held the culture appropriately started winning and then they could have probably went any way with it honestly they could have honestly went like yo the you know i would rather if if jay-z and kanye and you know trap club quest last year and even rhapsody and those folks were like yo this is nice but i value the NAACP awards more, and I'm going to show up for those awards. I'm going to yeah. show up for the BET awards. I'm going to show up for the Soul Train awards. If they did that, then I think you start to see a shift yeah. in leverage. But what, for whatever reason, the Grammy Awards has always held the leverage. They've always gotten the A-level Beyonce performance or, or whoever, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And... The even to like I said, the BET awards or, or the Soul Train awards or, or awards that may be catered more to Black Americans would seem to be like an afterthought. Hmm. It, it, I think it's just kind of who's in the positions of authority, who's in the positions to really shift the leverage, and collectively, are they willing to shift that power structure? Well, that's the thing, and that's why I, you know, I know you said aside from the machine and the record labels, but at the end of the day, in my opinion, those are the people who hold the authority are the labels. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I think without them, now, like you said, you hit the nail on the head. I think if Jay Z, if you know, like the top artists in hip hop culture Lil Wayne T.I. yeah all, I mean because they've all won now absolutely like all those guys have won if they've Rihanna all they've together, all won absolutely and if like you said if they got together and said hey you know I me mean? we appreciate the award but this is not where we hold our value you know the Soul Train Awards is just as valuable this platform is just as valuable I think it would start that shift that we should start to see but until they do that I don't think it's going to change and I don't think they can do that without the labels being involved and i don't think the labels will ever allow that to happen i honestly don't we'll have to leave it there this is the cheats movement on wrir we will be right back after this Ladies and gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. This is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. It is Tuesday, December 3rd. Gigi Broadway is in the building. Yes, coming back off of a four-day vacation. Turkey time, feel good, man. How you doing? I'm doing fantastic, and we had a wonderful Thanksgiving. I hope all of you guys had a wonderful Thanksgiving out there. So I've got to tell this story, because anyone that follows me, follows the show on social media, you know that I was kind of sweating if I wanted to go see Hamilton or not. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Hamilton the Musical is here. It's in Richmond. It's at the Altria Theater. It runs. It's currently running, and I think it runs through um, a couple more weeks or so in Richmond. Tickets are outrageous. Are they? Tickets for Hamilton, price-wise, are outrageous. Give me a little little idea of what so, let me, uh, so, like everyone else, I heard Hamilton was coming to Richmond, and I hit my mans, like all of my contacts, I hit them. And I was like, man, what's, you know, kind of on the fence about this Hamilton thing, but if you have an in on tickets, hit me up. Mm-hmm. My man, shout out to my man Matt, he came through day one opening night in the orchestra and was like, cheats. I got two tickets in the orchestra opening night. We can't make it. I know you were interested. If you want them, I will sell them to you for what I paid for them, which was face value. Okay. Would you like to know the price? Absolutely. I'm dying to know. Two tickets, $350. Say what now? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> two tickets, $350 opening night in the orchestra for Hamilton. 300 350 350 For two tickets. So I was like... Let me talk to the wife. Wife was like, it's the holidays. We can't do that. (laughs) We have to buy presents for Cam. We got to buy, you know, we got to do our holiday thing. We're going to Disney. I want to say next week we're going to Disney where we're taking Cam down there. So it was like, we can't do $350 for a night of the theater. That's a lot. So I hit my man's back and was like, hey man, can't do it. But while I was online, I was like, what should I do, people? And the fans, the listeners, the audience came through and said, Cheats, every day there is a lottery for Hamilton tickets. And if you win the lottery, you can buy two tickets for $10. Ooh. So I didn't think much of it. Obviously, everybody and their mom is, is applying for this lottery. I was like, but I'm going to get on and apply for the lottery. I'm lucky often. I feel lucky. I win a lot of things, raffles and stuff. Good to know. So, lo and behold, Thursday, they will notify you at Thursday at 11 o'clock if you won the lottery for Friday's show. Okay. You have to buy your tickets within a four-hour window, but they let you know every day at 11 a.m. Thursday night, I won. You did not win I the won. lottery. So, instantly, I'm on it. Buy two tickets, $10. <laughs> Don't even know. They tell you. You might be obstructed view. Your two tickets might not be together, but you're in there to see Hamilton. So Friday night, last Friday night, before the start of all the, you know, real Thanksgiving festivities, me and Aria, night at the theater, we saw Hamilton. Wow. I'm going to tell you, as a hip-hop fan, I went in very skeptical. Even after all of the, I'm a fan of musicals, I'm a fan of plays, I'm a fan of hip-hop, I went in still skeptical about how much hype. Hamilton had yeah and I mean I've seen I saw some background documentaries we did some things over at VPM um, leading up to Hamilton and I was still skeptical about the actual you know three-hour play right Mm -hmm. the three-hour production I kid you not phenomenal really phenomenal 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 from top to finish to top to bottom I recommend anyone that is again it's not Nas lyrics. It's not Biggie lyrics, right? But this guy, Lin-Manuel Miranda, shout out to him because he's a <laughs> genius. He really is a genius. Has to make a three-hour musical, mostly based off of hip-hop music, that tells the story of Alexander Hamilton, which was a crazy story. 
but it was from top to bottom. I'm not going to say it was the best play I've ever seen in my entire, my entire life, mm-hmm. but it impacted me differently than I ever thought it would. Wow. It made me interested to go back and read more about that time period. I mean, it was phenomenal from top to bottom how this guy put it together. It took him six years to make Hamilton. Six years. Six He years. worked on one song for one year. And, and, and just so seeing how he translates this story and the way that he does it in the spirit of uh, hip-hop music, hip-hop culture, the way he's black and Latino uh, actors to tell this story, the way that he put rap, he put rap battles. They were debating issues in Congress. Uh-oh. He made it a rap battle. Like a real legitimate rap battle. Oh, now you got my attention. It was phenomenal. Hamilton is like, I I get it. I get why it was hyped the way it was. I get why people um, understand. And again, don't go into it thinking, you know, it's going to be black thought type rap skills. It's not going to be. Because that's what I thought. No, it's not. that. That's not what makes it amazing. What makes it amazing is. In our time, in contemporary art and contemporary theater, he presented a story in a way that we have never seen before on the stage on Broadway like that. You can say what you will about musicals. You can say what you will about musicals that use hip hop. The way that he told that story, he made the Revolutionary War interesting. He made the characters Thomas Jefferson, Hamilton, George Washington, Aaron Burr. He made those guys. And so it is not a normal thing for you to read a book and then say, I'm going to do this conceptually. And the way that he goes about doing it, man, I'm telling you from top to bottom, everybody should see it. Wow. So the hype is well-deserved. I believe believe that the hype is well-deserved. I believe that the praise, if anything, I know... Lin-Manuel Miranda and all those guys, all the investors in Hamilton and all that, they are set for life. This is their this is their legacy for their entire life. And I don't think we put enough perspective into that because on Broadway, it usually takes years and years for investors to recruit, recoup their um, investment. Right. They recoup the Hamilton investment in six weeks. In six weeks? To date, they've made 600 times more than the investment that those guys put in. And it's all and I'm telling you it's all well deserved. Well yeah, the price of those tickets I can see. No, it's all well deserved. It's all and again, uh, <laughs> we were at the uh the Altria Theater and it was I guess formerly the landmark, formerly the, the mosque, and it's over thirty five hundred seats. It's sold out every night. So uh, okay, so let me ask you this. It's amazing. Knowing what you know now, would you pay full price for those tickets without Not, hesitation? Without hesitation, I probably wouldn't do it during the holidays mm-hmm. if it was January on if it's January through no <laughs> January through September October I, I really would because I want to see it again it really did make me go back and and it puts time periods and references and dates and a lot of that stuff in perspective mm. more so than I ever had before and so with that said shout out to all the people that told me about the lottery um it's it is it is as advertised it's that good um, and again, you don't even have to. My re- my interesting thing about Hamilton is you don't even have to really be into the theater 
to enjoy this particular musical and this particular show see that was going to be my next question so you can not even care about theater and still be interested for three hours i think i think it's that good especially the first time and i think there's certain people that'll watch it once and say i'm good and i think there'll be the majority of the people that watch it are like man i really want to learn more i know that the author of that hamilton biography is he's probably in debt forever because the number of people that saw the play and wanted to go back and read the read the book that that inspired the play that's crazy it's crazy is the lottery still going on Yes. So up you can you got to download the Hamilton app. But if you download the Hamilton app, you can enter into the lottery as long as the show's running in Richmond, and they will tell you if you win every day at eleven o'clock. It's um, again, we didn't have the we were up in the balcony. You know what I'm saying? We did get to sit together, but we were up in the balcony. We had a little bit of an obstructive view on a certain part of the stage, but for it's the best twenty dollars. I will say this: it's the best twenty dollars <laughs> that me and Aria have spent in a long time. Really? It was, for $20, it's amazing. $350 is good, but for $20, it's amazing. Oh, wow. So that's the Hamilton story, ladies and gentlemen. It was uh, amazing. If you have watched the play, if you have comments on the play, please, please, please hit us up. Let us know what you think about it. Um, I've already given you my two cents, and like I said, uh, I think I'm better for seeing it. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, we'll be right back after this. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. We are on location recording live from one of my favorite places, the Valentine Museum, and joining me today is bill martin the director of the valentine bill, glad you're here <laughs> bill welcome to the cheats movement we're we're happy you're here and it's a great day in downtown for better or for worse history has always been richmond's backdrop i'd argue that history lives in richmond's atmosphere more so than many other places and for me the history of richmond has manifested itself recently in ways that i would not have predicted one I recently saw Hamilton the Musical, which Mm -hmm. is playing right downtown, right here uh, at the Landmark Theater. It's still going on. It is phenomenal and fascinating. You got to see it. And we're going to talk about that. Uh, And then two, I am kind of smacked out. Over the weekend, I picked up a book, and that book is titled Race Man. It's the story of John Mitchell Jr., the famed editor of the Richmond Planet. And it's by an author named Mary Fields Alexander. And I've actually saw the book. It's in your gift shop right now. Um, Makes a perfect holiday present. It really does. <laughs> and reading this book really brings communities of Richmond. So uh, things that we're talking about today, like Navy Hill is a name that we've heard a lot about, about the development, uh, the Navy Hill development that's taking place in where the old Navy Hill community used to be. Reading this book, I learned a lot about the Navy Hill community in the 1880s and 1890s and a little bit beyond that. Um, the question I have for you to start is, I think historically there are so many layers in Richmond that center around race and poverty, uh, race or economics, however you want to put it. From a historical perspective, when you hear about communities like Navy Hill or even the forgotten neighborhoods of the past, what comes to, what comes to mind for you when you're talking about 
the city of Richmond and those kind of historic neighborhoods that still, like, some are still here, but most of them are And gone. many of them, their names have been lost entirely. And I think one of the things that, that, that is an opportunity as we continue to do research is that there are many neighborhoods whose names have been lost and that the opportunity to go back and look at maps and look at early plans for the city and see these places um, that, you know, have been forgotten. Like there's, you know, re it's not a recent discovery, but something that's now on people's mind is there's the second African burial ground um, that is essentially under a highway, not just the African burial ground that we know, but there's a second place that's actually really towards Highland Park. So we're, we're continuing and we'll continue to find these places that have been forgotten, lost, uh, and some of that is lost intentionally. And I think when we talk about places like Navy Hill, when we talk about the changes in, uh, in Jackson Ward even, these neighborhoods were symbols of power and community uh, in, in the years after the Civil War. There were incredible social institutions, churches, banks, all these institutions, schools like Navy Hill School and others uh, that represented a, a part of the community that actually today is for the most part been scraped away. Um, certainly there are pieces of, of Jackson Ward, but when we think about how big Jackson Ward was historically, you're talking about a totally different place. And we can see really after in the, 18, in the 1940s this intentionality about how these neighborhoods are going to be treated. And so you have things like transportation planning where an entire section of the city just happens to be 10% of the African-American population of the city lose their houses because of the construction of I-95, whether it's Carver or Jackson Ward or Navy Hill. And, 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 and it's systematic. It's not just construction. It's about availability of insurance and mortgages. It's a, it's, you know, there's this long list of things that you can see being imposed intentionally uh, to isolate and disenfranchise and the Richmond's African-American community. It's not just here. It's all across the country. It's sure. northern and southern cities. But I think, you know, because we can see it here and we can see it as, as, as ideas move forward on new projects, it actually brings up those spirits uh, to remind us of those neighborhoods and what happened there and what can't be forgotten. One of the things that you mentioned, and, and you're right, some of this kind of systematic destruction and then the losing of kind of history was intentional it was designed one of the things that's fascinating to me and we we're just talking about this a little bit offline but i want you to kind of bring us into politically what happened because and i think you kind of said the watershed mark was around 1890 which yeah. is which is really um is really kind of a framework but the the interesting part of this is uh you know, there's periods after, you know, after the Civil War, during Reconstruction, where there was seemed to be a more progressive attitude towards racial equality. And then it's like we went backwards. There was this lost opportunity, I think. And everyone, when we look back at our textbooks, the ones that, that certainly I had when I was in school, um, you know, there was nothing really, there was the Civil War. It wasn't really the Civil War then, it was the war between the states. Mm -hmm. 
Um, you have Reconstruction, and then we jump directly to 20th century, and there's no sense, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, there's nothing that we don't really talk about the, the 1880s, 1890s, because what happens in Virginia is really fascinating. There's a new party that's created called the Readjuster Party. And this party runs Virginia for two terms of governor, but also continues to have members elected to city councils. In fact, both uh, both houses of city council in Petersburg and Richmond were totally controlled by the Readjuster Party. Both houses of the General Assembly of Virginia were controlled by the Readjuster Party. And this group was a strange, I mean, I'll tell you, it was a strange alliance. Right. Because it was uh, newly freed and enslaved. So folks that were just getting newly enfranchised folks. It was poor whites and some radical Republicans, Republicans. And the kicker is some Confederate generals hmm. who I actually believe in, you know, what is their motivation? Is this opportunism? I think that there are people after the war that said it, we, we lost and this is the opportunity to rebuild the South in a different model. And they this readjuster party was really sort of a manifestation of that, I think. You know, it's hard to look at people's motivations. Sure. But I think that, that there was this moment when some really important things happened in Virginia. There was a new constitution that guaranteed access to public education. They created a number of institutions that we know today, Virginia State University. Uh, Central State Hospital, which is the first uh, state-supported African-American hospital for, for mental health, right. um, was also in Petersburg. And you know there was, a, there was a moment when this could have happened, or it appears if you look at the history. And, but Jim Crow began to rise across the South and in Virginia, and, for, and Richmond becomes that place that in many ways... Yeah. I don't want to cut you all tea, but one of the things that I was gaining from the book was the readjusters were pretty significantly anti-lynching as well, which was like big, which is a big problem. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Problem. And, and so you find this whole period um, that's been totally forgotten from the history books, and suddenly we have this opportunity to talk about that here. So we'll find a lot of things related to the readjuster party here because we think it's like this pivot point. Mm-hmm. But I, but what happens in 1888 is that the governor, Fitzhugh Lee, is elected. The nephew of Robert E. Lee. The nephew of Robert E. Yep. Lee. And things begin to change. And by 1890, you have Monument Avenue. 1888 is also the date when Monument Avenue is plotted for the first time. So the actual development of Monument Avenue. So these dates are not coincidences. Right. So Monument Avenue goes up. But what else happens in the 1890s? Suddenly the social structure of the city begins to be created. So guess what institutions are created? The United Daughters of the Confederacy did not exist until the 1890s. Mm-hmm. Sons of Confederate veterans. This is 25 years after the war. Um, it's, you know, institutions like the Museum of the Confederacy, the Valentine Museum. Um, Maggie Walker starts the bank. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of go down the list and see the sort of parallel universe, these parallel social institutions that begin to create real wealth in the African-American community independent banks, insurance companies, because it had to happen because there were no, there were no other ways for it to happen except to do it yourself. Mm-hmm. And there were no impediments to that happening. Right. I mean, that, and that's, and that's, that's a, another key point. And right? that's a key point, yeah, that, yeah. That, they were, that folks had the ability to do this without the kind of things that you see later 
uh, with restrictions on loans and insurance and all the other things that be begin to totally limit um, and, and the opportunities in the African-American community. And in some ways during that time period, um, which obviously was not perfect, especially when you look at like the numbers of um, you know, the justice system and so forth. But it was interesting to read some of the faith, if you will, that people had in the justice system. So they would go to court <laughs> with, the trust, with the trust that the court is going to sort this out in favor of whether it was... Doing you know, that somehow there was a sense that the system was not stacked right. and that, in fact, you could in, you could in a system triumph. And, they, and in fact, there are pretty, some really amazing examples during this period when the courts did respond in ways that are really would be kind of interesting to look at today. Mm-hmm. But, you know, but I think that that's, the, that's this point in, in Richmond where things really begin to shift. And Richmond becomes the, center, the central focal point for the, the myth of the lost cause. You know, the sort of creation of this mythology of the South, of a South that never really existed. Mm-hmm. Um, of everyone was a cavalier, a noble hero on a horse, <laughs> and everyone, all women, white women, were, you know, Scarlet O'Hara. Sure. And all black women were mammies. Sure. You know, the Aunt Jemima figure. And so, every, you know, and, and former slave, slaves were, were happy. You know, this whole... Right, that whole this, false narrative. That, that whole yeah. fantasy that, that Richmond created and, and you know, with its monuments, with its cultural institutions, with its history, everything was built around this mythology. And so you had a community in Jackson Ward and Carver and in Navy Hill that responded, that were actually living lives in those neighborhoods against what was this increasing mythology that surrounded them. And in many ways, that mythology lives with us today. In um, many ways. And so you, and the, especially in particular in the Valentine, has done a number of things, including um, the series that you've titled, is it Controversy Slash History? Mm-hmm. Um, that brings some of this mythology of the past into real debates today. You mentioned Monument Avenue. Right. You just had a number of these kind of contemporary modern issues that you put an amazing spin on at the Valentine. It's not a spin. I think. I mean, I think that we want to have people rethink an idea. Is like you know, one of a few years back we did because we were looking at workforce development. And everyone's talking about workforce development. Kind of have make folks in the pipeline for jobs. What did workforce development look like in the Wickham House in 1812? Mm-hmm. What workforce development, and this is sort of mind-blowing, is that Mr. Wickham, who had a large number of enslaved people in his household, would simply send down the hill to the market if he needed more people to mm-hmm. work for him. That you was know, workforce development. That was workforce development. You know, and so when we think about workforce development today, what are the, the, the barriers that exist today? And many of them may have been based on some of the notions of enslavement, really. I mean, so the, hist- the past is absolutely present every day. 
and through your series and through other things, how do you, especially for young people, history, especially Richmond history, like you said, have been taught uh, at best incorrectly for a really long period of time. Um, and we're still probably not getting it right. We're today. not getting it right. We still have, I mean, all of us have so much to work to do. How, how do you, in places like the Valentine, move to accurately portray history as it was with the in, with the purpose of educating so that maybe we don't make these same mistakes again? You know, I think the, the, the thing that we've tried to do is make everything nice and clean and neat. You know, we've, we want, there are heroes and they're, you know, they're, and by creating heroes, we don't really create real people that we can identify with. Mm-hmm. And so by actually looking at those folks that have influenced us so as people who are making decisions, that we're trying to do the best that they knew at that particular moment and, and trying to work through that and actually trying to bring that story to, to, to folks. That it's like we're all here today. We're facing challenges. We're still trying to figure out for, for us as a country what those values mean. What does voting rights, access to political authority look like? You know, what does liberty look like? And if we begin to make those stories much more personal, you can engage people. And we, we see that with, with lots of kids coming here and lots of adults that are coming as part of our other programs, you know, people, don't, people want to see themselves in the stories. <laughs> they want to see, you know, how is this person like them? Mm-hmm. And by putting someone up on a pedestal, we already say that that person is not you. Interesting. You know, that person's not you. If they're on that pedestal, they're not you. Because you know you're not there. We all know that we're not, that in fact, we're the folks that live every day, work in the shadow of all of these things. And how do we do what's the, you know, what do, how do we take care of our families today? How do we provide, you know, how, what can we learn from the past about jobs and economic empowerment? You know, there are things that Maggie Walker was teaching that you know, we should kind of think about today. When you think about when she came to the order of St. Luke, you know, she said there are a couple of things we need to do here. You know, sure. <laughs> you know, we need to control the press. We need to make sure that we that we have our own newspaper that can tell our story. Sure. We're gonna con- we're gonna have our own bank because we need to control our own finances. And you know, the, the, the and, and yeah. we we need to have our own retail because we need as a community, every community, every community has to have those things: the sort of access to honest information, access to finance, and access to doing business with each other. You know, and so those are. I mean, I think that there are things that we can look back. And if you see Maggie Walker, she's you know she's kind of on the ground with the rest of us. Sure. You know, um, but I think that that. That, that's what places like this do, is actually try to see these folks as people just like us, struggling to make decisions, making at times horrible, horrible decisions. Um, no, one of the things that's fascinating to me, even just listening um, as you're talking about Maggie Walker, was even in the midst of um, all of the wonderful things that she was creating and, and says that our community needs, the interesting thing is there's that layer of misogyny, right, that the reason she has to do this stuff and do it alone is because even uh, black men were not 
really giving women full access. Not at all. And I think you can look at voting rights as sort of a similar kind of situation. And, and we have an exhibit here now that, that looks at suffrage in Virginia, and it's, it's obvious what's happening here. So you've got Lila Mead Valentine, who's leading the, the women's suffrage movement in Virginia. Well, she's leading a partial suffrage because it's not for black folks. It's not for black women. You know, right. it, is, it is voting rights for white women. Because if black women could vote, that would mean that there, and there's actually a map in this exhibition that will show the number of counties that would, the vote by adding black women to the voting rosters would have shifted the votes. And we couldn't have that. And we couldn't, and we couldn't have that. And so this notion of, of black control and black political power is being manifest right there in just something what seems to be, if we're going to be voting, all women should vote. You would think. Sure. And, but the counter-narrative is that, that there were actually large numbers of women in Richmond who opposed their own suffrage. Absolutely. Because that was, you know, that was unseemly. That was men's business. You know, that the women should be out doing good works working for the United Way or doing so, social services, their place was not in the political, to have any political influence at all. That was men's work, um, which seems, and again, so we can see that, that, that these moments in time, there can be shifts in the t way we think, and it can be against the dominant position. You know. I would go as far as arguing even today uh, and especially when you look at uh, the political election of 2016, the mm -hmm. national election, there were tons of women that would not vote for a woman to be president even today. Right. I think that there were, I think we can look back at that historic moment mm -hmm. with women and suffrage that what else was influencing women's votes? You know, what else was, you know, why, why were women voting in large numbers um, for Trump? And so the question becomes, what, what other factors influence voting behaviors? And I think that's, a, a, and that's one of the things that we looked at, actually, in one of our um, controversy history programs, was it was actually right after the election and looking at women's voting and voting patterns in Virginia uh, to really understand what does... What, if, what impacts voting behaviors that are things that we, that seem to go contrary to, to what seems logical in some ways? I'm assuming, and I, I don't know for sure, because I'd be fascinated to hear some of the results, but I'm assuming one of the biggest, would church, would the church be one of the biggest kind of yeah, ancillary I think, factors? Yeah, I mean, we went through a long list. Okay. And, yeah, but... The voice you are hearing is the director of the Valentine Museum, Bill Martin. We are at the Valentine Museum today for the Cheats Movement on WRIR. I recently saw Hamilton, the musical here in Richmond. You said you've seen mm -hmm. it here mm -hmm. on Altria as well. Um, figures, revolutionary founding father type figures uh, like Alexander Hamilton, Thomas Jefferson, George Washington, they are made to be very human and very complicated in this musical and I think one of the things that 
there's so many things. And that's why it's so refreshing. Right. They're so fascinating. But that was one of the things that was the most fascinating about it was that these are human beings. Right. And I think that when you see someone as a human being, you suddenly, that's why I think that the appeal of Hamilton is it takes down a facade, it pulls some folks off of monuments, and you actually begin to see them as complicated, conflicted, and sometimes not very nice people. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, but, it, but it's affirming to know that, that, you know, all of us, you know, where we, wherever we are in life, we, we have all of those things in us, but it doesn't mean that you can't act in a way um, that eventually gets to a better place. You know, you just, I mean, it's about the daily action. And so when we see in Richmond, I mean, I, and I think we forget that entire period in Virginia history. I, I would, I'd, I'd like to say that there are two periods in Richmond history that we don't look at. at 1890s, that sort of readjuster period, that 1890s on through the 1902 Constitution, when, which is the Jim Crow Constitution, which establishes for most of the 20th century Jim Crow law. Huge, huge step backwards, huge step backwards. You know, and so you got that, but you also have this thing that's happening after the American Revolution. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, you know, the folks in the North, but the fact of the matter is, is that Virginia, whatever our country looks like, is based on what, not only Virginia, but what Richmonders, the influence Richmonders were having on this new government. Just think about it, what would, there would be, not as we know today, that what would the Supreme Court look like had it not been for John Marshall, who established the precedent of judicial review? You know, the thing that we have the most conflict and concern with the Supreme Court are the things that were really sort of being invented by John Marshall. You have Thomas Jefferson before the Constitution is being really fully written, um, the Virginia General Assembly passes Jefferson's Statute for Religious Freedom, which for the first time establishes the ability for freedom of conscience, something we all might need to be rem reminded of in the current political environment, that people have the can express their faith in any way that they would like, you know, th that, and that that's an important part, and it actually leads to the inclusion of the Bill of Rights in the Constitution. There's some other weird things that are there, like the, the three-fifths thing, which means that, that enslaved people, when you're doing the census every 10 years, are not counted as full people, but are counted as three-fifths. But you were saying that... Yeah, but guess what that does for, for Virginia? Richmond, yeah. What does that do for Virginia in the early years? Why are those presidents being elected from Virginia? Certainly they're, they're great minds in the New Republic, but the Electoral College, because Richmond has, at that point, the largest enslaved population of all the, the new states, the Electoral College vote is skewed towards Virginia because all those folks are counting in the Electoral College uh, votes for, for Virginia. And so Virginia is able to elect most of that original political leadership because it has this special status because of the status of enslaved people in Virginia. And so, so all of that, when, when we're looking at Hamilton and going, okay, but there's the Supreme Court, who did that? Where did that Bill of Rights actually come from? Who is, who is writing this document that we're still trying to figure out? Right. Um, because, you know, we st we're not there yet. You know, as, as, a, as individuals and as a country, we're not there yet. And this opportunity to use things like Hamilton and museums 
and whatever else we can think of to pull us back to those original ideas um, that will make us angry, that will confuse us, that will excite us. All of those things you can find in the history of people that are just like us. Bill, I'm going to ask you this. Last question on the way out. It is known and said and often repeated, if we don't fully understand our history, we'll be doomed to repeat, uh, repeat it. And, and we good, do. In good ways and bad. <laughs> and we do. When you look at kind of the landscape of today, the contemporary landscape of, of Richmond and the nation, what lessons should we be applying from, you know, historical periods to now? And so we don't make the same mistake over and over again. I think there's a, there are a couple things. One is you need to put down your phone and get off of social media and get engaged in the community. There are organizations in your neighborhood um, that, that we need to get in involved in those neighborhood organizations. We need to vote. We need to get active in our political activities. We need to actually get engaged in our community and talk to another person. That I think this will be a period that is known because we separated from each other in real ways. That in, that in fact, one of the reasons that we have ended up where we are today is that we, have, we stopped talking to each other in the same spot. We stopped gathering in our places of worship. We stopped going to places just to hang out, our social clubs and all those things. That those are the places where real conversation happen. And that all of us need to just start showing up. Because if you go to a meeting like those that Richmond 300 is doing for the master plan, you go, and there are 12 people here. You know, I will just tell you that those are important, deci important decisions are being made, and they're going to be made with, with us or without us. And so we, if we believe that we can actually affect change, it's showing up. It's showing up our people don't even want you to be there because that's what we learned from those folks in Jackson Ward. It's showing up. It's going to court. It's doing the things that even if you're uncomfortable, even if you are, is making sure that, that, that your voice is present in a real way. And so that's, I mean, I think one of the lessons we can learn from today is, is, and from the past is people that made change showed up. Bill, I'm going to have to leave it there. This is fascinating, and we could do this on and on again. But please, please, ladies and gentlemen, take a visit to the Valentine Museum. I know, speaking of social media, you guys are all over Instagram and Facebook. But Yes, we do that. <laughs> uh, but really quickly, what's the 30-second uh, pitch for everyone to come visit the Valentine? The Valentine's that place that we hope you see yourself with everything else that's happened in the city's past. We'll have to leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. This is the Cheats Movement on WRIR. We'll be right back after this. That's the end of our show. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening. Please rate the review. This is the Teach Movement of W R I R.